Khaled placed all of his hopes and dreams on a little boat that would hopefully take him towards the shores of Greece where he could finally find safety. We were like 200 meters not far from the beach and then we were all young men and the boat groaned because the driver wasn't driving good and the wave turned all in the sea and yeah we swam back some of us the others got arrested I decided to not give up on this and to try seven times the seventh time we got it we, we crossed the sea Stay with us to hear how refugees in Greece face even more difficulties after facing life-threatening journeys to get to Europe. Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. Hello and welcome to the new Arab Voice. I'm Daniel Hejaji. And I'm Gaia Karamatsa. And this week we'll start by covering the US brokered normalization deal between Bahrain, the UAE, and Israel. Then we'll cover the circumstances that refugees are now faced with in Greece after the devastating fire which ravaged Europe's largest refugee camp. Bahrain has officially joined the United Arab Emirates in normalizing ties with Israel. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the foreign ministers of Bahrain and the UAE sealed the Abraham Accords last week with a signing ceremony at the White House. In his remarks, U.S. President Donald Trump hailed the treaty as historic. We're here this afternoon to change the course of history. After decades of division and conflict, we mark the dawn of a new Middle East, Thanks to the great courage of the leaders of these three countries, we take a major stride toward a future in which people of all faiths and backgrounds live together in peace and prosperity. Trump said at least five or six other countries will soon move to normalize ties with Israel. Netanyahu was just as optimistic. This day is a pivot of history. It heralds a new dawn of peace. For thousands of years, the Jewish people have prayed for peace. For decades, the Jewish state has prayed for peace. And this is why today we're filled with such profound gratitude. And the blessings of the peace we make today will be enormous. First, because this peace will eventually expand to include other Arab states, and ultimately, it can end the Arab-Israeli conflict once and for all. And in a rare mention of the Palestinians, Bahraini Foreign Minister Abdel Latif Zayani touted the now-dwindling prospect of a two-state solution. It is now incumbent on us to work urgently and actively to bring about the lasting peace and security our peoples deserve. A just, comprehensive, and enduring two-state solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict will be the foundation, the bedrock of such peace. 
UAE Foreign Minister Abdullah bin Zayed al-Nahyan thanked Netanyahu for halting the annexation of Palestinian territories. But Israel only promised to delay plans to annex swathes of the occupied West Bank, not halt them altogether. And as expected, hundreds of Palestinians demonstrated against what they perceived to be Arab leaders selling out their quest for self-determination for narrow geopolitical interests. I spoke to Khaled al-Gindi, senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C., who said characterizing the normalization agreements as much-awaited Middle East peace deals is more of a marketing strategy than a step towards regional stability. It does not uh, actually, in my view, advance the goal of a comprehensive peace in the Middle East, um, nor is it really designed to. It's, it's pretty clear, I think, despite the fancy packaging, we're not talking about peace agreements here. We're talking about bilateral agreements that are useful for military, strategic, and economic purposes. Um, this is not really about promoting peace in the region. Peace in the region will come from addressing the sources of conflict. So I think it's uh, I think it's good marketing, but probably inaccurate to characterize these as peace agreements. With the newly forged ties, the UAE is seeking a huge boost in trade, defense, and banking collaboration with Israel. The UAE has also been eyeing the American F-35 warplane in a bid to establish itself as a regional military power. And the negotiations with Israel are a way to convince Washington to make the sale. And as for Bahrain, the tiny Gulf country's move may hint towards Saudi Arabia's leanings regarding normalization with Israel. Bahrain is more an indication of where other actors in the region, like Saudi Arabia, are leaning. Bahrain is a small country, but it's important as a kind of Saudi client state. It's unlikely that the Bahrainis could have taken this step without some sort of a green light from Riyadh. Uh, so this may be an indication of which way the Saudis are leaning, or it may be an indication, uh, maybe an attempt to deflect some pressure on the Saudis by offering up the Bahrainis as a concession instead of moving straight toward uh, Saudi normalization. As the Palestinians reel from bitter disappointment over the actions of their former Arab allies, Al-Gindi believes a unified strategy can help them take charge of their future. We learned under the Obama administration that the United States was not going to save the Palestinians or to take any serious steps toward achieving a two-state solution. What we've learned under the Trump administration is that the Arab states are also Uh, not really uh, in the Palestinians' corner. There is no real peace process. There is uh, growing discontent uh, locally with their own leadership. So it is, uh, I think, a wake-up call for Palestinians that they need to put their internal house in order. They need to develop some sort of national strategy that can move them forward. There needs to be a, a debate internally. There needs to be a, a consensus of some sort over the future of the Palestinian national movement and what their strategy is. Bahrain and the UAE are the first Arab nations to establish relations with Israel since Egypt in 1979 and Jordan in 1994. But do Bahrainis and Emiratis support their government's controversial decisions? Not necessarily, though expressing dissent in both countries comes at a price. Rights watchdog Freedom House gave the UAE and Bahrain respective scores of 17 and 11 out of 100. Human Rights Watch has deemed the human rights situation in Bahrain to be dire, citing its ban on all independent media and opposition groups, as well as the arbitrary revocation of citizenship, 
detention, and harassment of human rights defenders, journalists, and opposition leaders. As for the UAE, Human Rights Watch said the Emirates show no tolerance for any manner of peaceful dissent, as it has imprisoned human rights activists over social media posts, as well as employed mistreatment and torture against dissidents, some of whom remain in jail despite completing their prison sentences. Shortly before Trump announced the UAE's normalization deal with Israel last month, Abu Dhabi warned the country's citizens and residents against challenging an imminent sovereign decision. This did not prevent Emiratis and Bahrainis from expressing dissatisfaction with their leaders' normalizing ties with Israel. Last month, a group of 20 leading Emirati activists signed a national petition condemning their government's deal with Israel, calling it an affront to all resolutions of numerous intergovernmental organizations, including the United Nations. And on their end, Bahraini staged several protests against the agreement, but local media has been unable to cover them due to press freedom restrictions. An Arabic-language hashtag that translates to Bahrain Against Normalization was widely used on Twitter. Bahraini journalist Naziha Saeed, who is based in Berlin, encapsulated the sentiments expressed by most Bahrainis who risked arrest to protest against normalization with Israel. We were not asked, we were not consulted if to take this decision or not. The government took it by themselves. We, we don't support such a step. The protest is banned in the country since 2014. Any gathering will be cracked down on, although people are risking that they're going to go to jail for protesting. People went out on the streets with dozens, like a few protests here, few other protests there in Manama, the capital, and in some villages. Uh, people have been on the street since, till, till Friday. There were bigger protests that t- took place with slogans against the naturalization and against Israel itself and against their um, apartheid system that uh, repress Palestinians and take their rights. Though there have been no immediate signs of repression against protesters or social media users opposing normalization, Saeed fears a delayed crackdown is imminent as a similar strategy was used in 2011 when Bahraini staged an Arab Spring uprising. Surprisingly, there were no crackdown on the protests that have been taking place in, in, on the streets in Bahrain and also not on the uh, uh, normal people who are um, tweeting, posting on Facebook or any other social media against the decision. Usually, uh, we are not allowed to express our opinion when it's opposite what uh, the government deciding or what the government wants. We are a little bit scared and suspicious about such a, a behavior of the government. In 2011, the protests took place on the streets for about a month. So there were no crackdown during that month. And once the crackdown happened, after the month, then it, it lasted for a few months that the government went after everybody who participated in any kind of support to the protest. Even the medics who treated the protesters have been uh, cracked down on. According to the Palestinian Authority, Oman, Sudan, Mauritania, Djibouti and the Comoros are in talks to begin fostering ties with Israel. And as the Palestinians find themselves with no say in the matter, it seems the constituents of normalization-bent Arab governments are left feeling similarly blindsided and betrayed. We lost everything. I'm left like this, you know. I have nothing, nothing with me. And then we don't know where we're going to sleep. All our house is burning. You know, our food is burning. Everything, our money is gone. We don't know what will happen. 
This is the voice of one of the many asylum seekers who, like 13,000 others, had found refuge in Europe's largest refugee camp until flames ravaged it on the night between September 8th and September 9th. Men, women, children, everyone grabbed what they could to escape the flames in the dead of night, having to say goodbye to their homes once more. This marked the end of Moria Camp on the island of Lesbos in Greece. Luckily, there were no injuries nor deaths, but after the fire, many were left to sleep rough without any bedding nor tents. Many fell asleep on the side of the road each night in car parks of supermarkets and in any other place they could find temporary refuge. Many rights groups and experts had already been decrying the conditions at Moria before the fire, saying it was unsustainable for the amount of people living there. 13,000 people had been reliant on it when it was actually built to host only 3,000. Human Rights Watch described it as an open-air prison. So the fire was unfortunately not a surprise to many. Moria is often called a hell on earth, and it, it has justly earned that name if you've been there. This is Katie Fallon, a freelance journalist based in Greece who has extensively covered the situation in Lesbos. When I first got here um, two weeks ago, I was walking through and people were asking me for food and water. Children were asking me for food and water. It was a really, really desperate situation. In the days, it was very hot. In the nights, it was very cold. People were chopping down trees sort of there's this kind of bamboo type root that grows in Lesbos and people are using that sort of little shelters for themselves and their families. Even though Moria was not a place that should be mourned, people had lives there that they had built. There were informal schools running. People had set up little shops on the side of the road, selling vegetables, selling jeans. And then that was just completely thrown into disarray with this fire. And people were really just left with so many questions. And one of them was, how are we going to eat? How are we going to drink? After the fire, residents of Moira joined together to decry their circumstances, many of them exhausted and exasperated after years spent living there in squalid conditions. The UNHCR quickly attempted to build a temporary camp to host those that were on the streets, but many were actually skeptical about moving in due to their previous living conditions in Moria camp. Katie said that she's been in touch with residents who have now relocated in the new makeshift camp. And many of them have said that the conditions are even worse. I, I think people are happy to be off the streets, but there is a real sense of exhaustion. And I'm talking to people in the camp. They say things aren't better there. There is a sense that Moria was bad, but they do say this is worse than Moria um, because obviously this place was an old military firing range, I believe. It, it was not set up for a humanitarian crisis like this. So it's not equipped for 9,000 people to be living their daily lives there. On Saturday, an official told me there was 100 toilets and that's 100 toilets for 9,000 people. Um, so that's 90 people a toilet. We haven't had any rain which is a good thing because this camp is situated right by the sea, so it's quite exposed to the elements. During the relocation, journalists and aid groups, including Doctors Without Borders, said that they weren't allowed to enter the new facilities in what Katie sees as a growing hostility against anyone trying to aid the refugees. There has been an in increase in hostilities towards humanitarian work, uh, by not just by police, but by 
you know, locals as well, uh, especially on Lesbos, there's a real sense of exasperation as well because they've been living with a situation and and some people think that NGOs are part of the reason why people continue to arrive on Lesbos and they think that NGOs make it a more palatable place, which of course anyone who walks around Moria will realise is not really the truth um, or walked around Moria because of course Moria doesn't exist anymore. But um, it's definitely fair to say that it's a harder environment uh, for people on the ground here in, in the past year or so, for sure. The situation is now likely to get even worse after the detection of coronavirus cases amongst the residents of the camp. This week, it's been reported by Greece's LD Health Agency that more than 240 asylum seekers on the Greek island of Lesbos have contracted the coronavirus, adding yet another danger to their lives. The UN Refugee Agency has now urged Greece to speed up its asylum process on Lesbos in the hopes of saving people from the situation on the ground, which seems to be deteriorating every day. This represents a much larger emergency situation all over the Mediterranean, with people waiting years for their asylum applications to be processed, while living in squalid and life-threatening conditions. In Greece as a whole, there are some 115,600 refugees and asylum seekers. Khalid is one of them. First time I decided to come to Greece, uh, it was in 2015. I tried uh, like 30 times and each time would get the boat and try to cross the Greece Sea. Uh, last time I tried, we were like 200 meters, not far from the beach. And then we were all young men and the boat groaned because the driver wasn't driving good and the wave turned all in the sea. And yeah, we swam back, some of us, the others got arrested. I decided to not give up on this and to try again. Seven times, the seventh time we got it, we, we crossed the sea. Khalid was 19 when he attempted the first of seven boat trips to reach refuge in Greece, before finally arriving at Vial refugee camp in Chios, Greece. Khalid is Kurdish, from Afrin, a city in northern Syria, near the border with Turkey. He had to flee Syria after being branded as a terrorist for simply celebrating Nowruz, a bonfire celebration of the arrival of spring and New Year in Kurdish culture. He told me that upon his arrival in Greece, he was taken immediately to the asylum center, where he got a glimpse of the reality of his legal status in the eyes of the Greek authorities. We had a man with us, with his family. Suddenly, one of his feet got swollen really big, and he started to having a panic attack. We tried to call policemen. I was like, hey, bro, could you please, you know, like, and then he, the policeman like told me, I'm not your brother. I was like, okay, my friend. And then he said, I'm not your friend. Whatever you are, the man is dying over there. Can we call the ambulance? Didn't answer anything. Tried to scream and something. No one would like even answer. And then we had to demonstrate inside the asylum service just to get an ambulance for the man. And that was uh, like the very beginning the asylum service and we almost got all beaten by the police because we were very aggressive to them because they didn't help the man to get into the hospital they just want to do the fingerprint and to take his size and question him first and then 
that was impossible. We couldn't bear it. Since he arrived in Greece in 2016, Khalid has been waiting for his asylum request to be processed, which filled him with anxiety every day and put his life on hold for more than four years. It's been the most difficult thing, I think, in my life. So when I went to the asylum service, they asked me some weird questions about Syria and Turkey. In the end, they were like asking me, would you like to add something? And uh, my answer to them was, well, uh, after waiting 1,150 days for one hour interview, just to receive my rights as a human being, I hope you guys can make this procedure a bit faster. And he couldn't even answer anything. And few seconds later, he told me you got accepted. Usually, you do you don't you, you don't get that. You go wait maybe days or maybe at least you will wait outside for a few hours. After finally receiving asylum at the start of the year, Khaled now works as an interpreter and translator in Thessaloniki, a city in Greece known by the locals as the mother of migration. This is due to its centuries-long history of providing refuge to those fleeing persecution and conflict, from Sephardic Jews in the 1400s to Greek refugees in the 1900s. Today, it hosts more than 16,000 asylum seekers and refugees from Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, plus South Asian and African countries. Hope Barker is the founder of WAVE Thessaloniki, an organization which helps refugees by providing them with food and essential resources like toothbrushes and socks when they first arrive into the city. She says that her organization mainly helps those who fall through the cracks of the asylum system. So single men like Khaled that come without families, and they're often from countries that are legally labeled as safe countries of origin. She says that they face their own unique struggles when arriving to the shores of Greece. I think it's largely the issue we have is the stigma attached to single young men of color, which is kind of universal. It's not even specific to refugees. And because of the stigma around them, I mean, lots of people don't want to work with them or have problems with engaging with them. It's not people that typically inspire pity or that people feel that they can connect to in some way. Now with COVID, we have to operate outside. We have more problems because obviously it's more visible and people don't really want to see this group. We've had to move locations many times because of complaints from neighbors. I mean, and actually people applying for voluntary return to really desperate situations because the situation here is somehow even worse. So that's like a really sad aspect that people would be would rather go back to a country where there's nothing for them. And they're living in really abject poverty, like unable to eat most days of the week. But actually, that's better than the racism and violence they've experienced in Europe. Hope says there's been a rise in xenophobia in the recent years, which has increased prejudices, especially against the single men that she helps. In the beginning of the crisis in 2015, 2016, when many Syrians were arriving to the island, there was definitely a feeling of like community and oh, we're helping these people. But increasingly, as people come from different backgrounds, there's been a kind of shift to demonize these people as economic migrants rather than legitimate refugees. But actually, I mean, the after effects of colonialism in Algeria have left the country completely ravaged and with abject poverty that people are living in and complete lack of access to opportunities or education. I mean, even Afghanistan is now seen as a safe country of origin. And it's just because the war has been so ongoing that it's no longer in the forefront of people's minds as an active war. And actually, Mitsotakis, the president, released a statement sometime last year saying, 
we're not dealing with a refugee crisis, we're dealing with an economic migration crisis. When the new government came in, then in the winter, October, November, they passed this international protection bill, which was the latest transcription of the common European asylum system. There was some backlash, so they've had to rewrite it because it didn't hold some of the guarantees that the common European asylum system holds as necessary for EU countries to implement in national legislation. So there has been some changes, but generally with this bill coming in, it was widely acknowledged that this was the start of an increasingly hostile environment. Greek journalist Vasilis Tsarnas believes that this form of racism has been actually informed by the Greek government, whose policy, he says, is discriminate against those seeking asylum on Greek soil. The policy of deterrence was a far-right idea implemented on a massive scale in Greece by the previous governmental alliance of radical left and the far-right. The current right-wing and openly racist government made everything even worse using the pandemic as an excuse to keep migrants locked in the camps and as far as possible away from the locals and the tourists during the summer. They also continued that not-so-secret policy of illegal violent pushbacks openly involving the Coast Guard in them. Racism in general got even stronger since this government came into power Hate speech is not really punished in Greece anyway, since the underage legislation is weak and most prosecutors are indifferent if not racist themselves. Xenophobic discourse amidst politicians was always there, but despite the fact the Nazi Golden Dawn Party is not anymore in the parliament, the current government has mainstreamed many of its ideas. Hope says that although the situation remains tragic for the many waiting year after year for their asylum requests to be processed, Many of those she helps on the streets of Thessaloniki manage to remain resilient. Really, one thing I have to say is that the guys we work with are so strong. Like, no matter what the situation is, they will all come to the distribution, like singing with a smile on their face, asking how you are, saying thank you. So really, when you explain to people, it sounds like a really awful situation. And, you know, sometimes it is. But on a day to day basis, you know, it's actually really nice and rewarding. And it's a really nice community to be a part of. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was hosted and produced by myself, Daniel Hejaji, and my colleague, Kaya Karamatsa. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you in two weeks' time with the next episode of The New Arab Voice.